All right, good morning, everybody. Um, we're continuing in our series today. We're calling the Creed. If you're like, what in the world is a Creed? Uh, the band is having a resurgence right now. We're not talking about that. Although, I'm not sad about that happening either. Um, so, a Creed is essentially a set uh, of words that kind of condenses down some really big ideas into something really important. And in the Christian world, uh, a Christian creed in particular, the ones that we're talking about, uh, have some history wrapped up in them and some uh, shared decision-making basically wrapped up in them as well. And so uh, we are calling this series The Creed because we are kind of going in between Mostly the Apostles' Creed, which is the one that we've been reciting every week, but also the Nicene Creed, or technically the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, but we call it the Nicene Creed for short. Uh, and if you're like, what's Nicene mean? That refers to the city of Nicaea, where a council happened, where they had to decide some important theological things, uh, and we'll get into that. And so, um, last couple of weeks that we've been in this series, um, we talked about the reality um, that and well, we talk through some of the historical background uh, of why we would study uh, any creed, or in particular the Apostles and the Nicene Creed, uh, what the creed even is. And I just want to invite you, maybe go home today and Google the Apostles' Creed and pull that up, and then Google the Nicene Creed and compare them to each other. And what you'll notice is that the Nicene Creed basically uh, clarifies and, and uses more wording to explain all the ideas that are there in the Apostles' Creed. And so we talked about... Uh, some of the historical background, what creeds even are, how the creeds have been used in the history of the church, where they come from. They're basically coming from the Apostles' Creed, at least. The answers you would give to questions that would be asked of you when you were being baptized. Who do you believe that God is? Well, I believe that God, the Father Almighty, is maker of heaven and earth. That's essentially what the creed is. It's a, a form of a catechism, and then it becomes what we know as a creed. Uh, one of the things I want to keep in front of you is that the creed, and in particular the creed that we refer to again as the Nicene Creed, is essentially a summation or a, 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 a gathering of what we would call historic little o Orthodox Christianity. And when I say little o, I mean not the branch of the church that you might know as the Orthodox Church, whether that be the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, or the Eastern Orthodox Church, that's capital O, O, but just the... the Christianity that's uh, had right doctrine for all of its uh, history. So the creed uh, has in it the guardrails of orthodoxy. So orthodoxy simply meaning correct doctrine. Uh, so the creed has the guardrails of right doctrine. So a uh, simple way to understand this is if you affirm the creed, if you're like, yeah, all the things I said in the creed, that's what I believe about Jesus and God, then you are well within the bounds of historic orthodox Christianity. And Christian teaching. So the big idea we pulled from that first week was on the words, I believe. That's the first two words we say in both the creeds. Uh, and what we pulled from that was the reality that when we say I, uh, we are saying it with the communal voice of the church for all time and for all places. And one of the points I tried to make was that saying I in the creed is a paradox because although that word for us signifies our individual person, which is true, in the same breath, we're also uh, diving into the reality that when we say that word in the creed, we are essentially placing ourselves into the church that we're going to refer to later on in the creed when we say the Holy Catholic Church, lowercase c again. Uh, and so in a beautifully gospel-centered way, 
what, when we say I in the creed, we lose ourselves into the family of God. And I mean that in a beautiful, positive way. Uh, we don't lose our individuality. In fact, individual human rights are, in Western culture, are 100% based in the Bible and Judeo-Christian values. So understand that Jesus brings individual value to you, but also when we say the word I in believe, we're saying it in a communal sense. So there's a paradox there. We said the creed invites us to say true words that have been tested over time. We said, you know, most of the words that we say throughout our life are trivial. They're they're not that important. Uh, We use the example of wedding vows being one of those places where when we try to change them and make them more authentic to us, in many ways they lose the beauty and the power that they have because they're no longer communal. And so the most important words that we say are communal words, right? If you say the words, I love you in a mirror, I mean, that's good that you have love for yourself, you should, but that's a little weird, right? I love you, the word I, doesn't make sense unless it's in a community of love. Whether that be just one other person, or you can say I love you to a group of people, right? So we talked about the communal body of Christ, and in that moment, how the creed becomes words that are deep and rooted in something that's far greater than me. This is why all the kind of communal things that we do have so much value to us, right? This is why when we sing the national anthem, we sing it together, we show respect. Why? Because it's showing us that we are part of something greater than ourselves. And in an eternally more significant way, that's what the creed helps us to do. And then last week, Bob, if you were here, did a fantastic job of walking us through the reality of the oneness of God. Uh, we, we talked about it in the first week how there are creed-like things in the scriptures. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, one of those is what we call the great Shema. Uh, uh, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. Hear, O Israel, right? We, we, said, we heard a song about that. Bob talked about that last week. Now, most of the time when I think about the great Shema, I'm thinking, and, and this is probably because of the stage of life that I'm in right now, but I mostly think of it in terms of its admonition to teach these things to your children as you lie down, as you walk on the roadside, right? We, that's the way I think of the Shema. There's this admonition towards all of life discipleship for our children, and certainly that's incredibly important. But what Bob helped us to walk through was the these things that we're supposed to teach our kids Uh, And the center of that is the oneness of God, that we are a monotheistic people. We believe there's one God. Now, some other world religions accuse us of being polytheistic, that we actually believe in three gods, and we're going to get into that today. But we believe in one God Almighty, right? And so this morning, what I want to do is essentially kind of continue what Bob started last week by jumping off from the oneness of God to talk through the personhood of God, or what we might refer to as the doctrine of the Trinity. So, right, really easy sermon. No confusing parts about it at all. No. Uh, so what we see in the Trinity, what we see the Trinity in the Creed itself, right? Now, it's not explained in the Trinity. Now, maybe a little bit in the Nicene Creed, uh, but not explained in the Trinity in terms of its mechanics. Although, so that you know this, In the Council of Nicaea, one of the main things they were working on is how is it that Jesus is fully God and fully man? And the language of of one essence became really important. And we talked about this on Friday in the Nicene Creed. Why do we say that in the Nicene Creed? 
And so the, the creed, as the Apostles' Creed, you'll notice, mentions all three members of what we might call the Godhead. And if you were paying attention this morning, we sang songs that had all three members of the Godhead. The first song we sang was called Jesus! Exclamation point. This, the, the, one of the next songs we sang was Run to the Father, and then we sang Holy Spirit. That wasn't on accident. We typically try to do that every week because we are Trinitarian people. And so... Um, the history of the creeds and the conferences uh, of church leaders, what we call ecumenical councils, is essentially a history of the church dealing with new theological challenges that spring up as more and more people become Christians and, and come to the faith. Right? That's going to happen. And so in the creed, the Trinity is not explained in terms of its mechanics in the Apostles' Creed, but it's assumed in its content. So you'll see all three members. Believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in Jesus, his only son, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, right? And so uh, as Christianity grows, people start asking questions that no one had thought to answer before because it was assumed. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is that kind of doctrine. It's all through the scriptures. Uh, This is one of the more, uh, and I don't mean this offensively, this is one of the more uneducated critiques of Christianity. Oh, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible. It most certainly is in the Bible, It's all over the place. And so what we're going to do today is not so much get into the mud of the mechanics of the doctrine of the Trinity, although that is super fun. So if you have questions about how that actually works, and is it like an egg, or is it like water, or is it, right? Write those questions down. Friday night is a time when we can uh, have those more uh, informal conversations about that kind of stuff. Uh, And the people that were there Friday will tell you, I love it. And when you start talking to me about that, a bunch of stuff just starts coming up in my head, and we, we get to going. Uh, we get to going. I don't know what that means. We get going, and I get to talking a lot. But here's what I want you to know about the Trinity and the nature of God. I'm excited about today's sermon. Uh, no matter how accurate our theology is, and we strive for it to be right doctrine, right? Don't ever hear me uh, sort of looking down, my, like saying theology doesn't matter. Oh, I think it matters, right? No matter how accurate our theology is, the truth is, We will never plumb the depths of who God is. You will never get there. And that truth is what makes the reality of all the other truths that we can get to so beautiful, right? Scripture tells us that God is great, that his greatness is unsearchable. Uh, This is something that the theologians call the unsearchableness of God or his inscrutability. You can't get to the bottom of the depths of who he is and that he is unfathomable that he's impossible for us to fully comprehend or fully understand. God is an ocean. There is no bottom. And at our best, we are like kids who are splashing around on the shore, right? That, that's the best we can do. So it's true that we cannot have comprehensive knowledge of God, but it's also true that we can have true knowledge of God. I can know God even though I can't know him fully. The psalmist even says, your thoughts are above my thoughts. Your ways are above my ways. And it was no accident that God created us with the ability to understand that we can't understand. That's no accident. And so we can truly know him because God is transcendent and he's infinitely far above us, but also he is imminent. And we'll get into this. He has revealed himself to us, has made himself near, and has made himself known to us through the person of Jesus in the gospel who invites us into the Trinitarian community. And so today, 
What I want to do is just think about the community of the Trinity and the community, or as the scripture we will read calls it, the fellowship of the Trinity. So, so here's why I want to focus on this reality in the creed this morning. Our fellowship with the Trinity is the key to Christian life. Okay, you, you can turn there if you want, uh, but I have this verse on the screen for you. Oh, the technology's working. Yeah, well, we don't cross fingers. Thank you, Lord. Right? You can turn there if you'd like, uh, but 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Uh, this passage might be familiar to some of you. We've used it here as a benediction or a blessing at the end of the service. It's used in a lot of traditions for that. Uh, but you'll also notice the image I put on the screen. This is an important image. We're going to get into uh, some of the fun stuff in this image uh, in just a bit. But here's the text of the scripture I want to just focus on today. The, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So this is from a letter uh, or an epistle from the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest teachers in the history of the church, the greatest missionary in the history of uh, the Christian church, to the Corinthian church, so all the Christians gathered in the city of Corinth. And here's what Paul is saying to them. He's commending the fellowship of the Spirit. So, so th let me talk a bit about this image because it uh, kind of gets us there in terms of the Trinity uh, and, and what we want to think about today. So this is uh, an icon by a 15th century Russian Orthodox icon painter or an iconographer named Andrei Rublev. He's considered one of the greatest iconographers of his time, maybe of all time. And if you know the book of Genesis, you might be seeing this and thinking, this seems like a depiction in the story of Genesis chapter 18 of the three men who visit Abraham and Sarah and, and promise this son. And if you're thinking that, then yes, you're correct. That is part of what this uh, icon is showing, but also this is a depiction of the Trinity. And, and if you're unfamiliar with Orthodox iconography, oh man, come on Friday night, we're going to get real nerdy. There's perspective, there's colors, all kinds of amazing stuff. Uh, I get really moved by this. Uh, my wife and I were vacationing in St. Augustine, Florida uh, one time, and we just kind of happened on an Orthodox uh, church. And we went inside, and it was covered on the inside with icons. And I had taken a class in college, and so I kind of had some pretty fresh knowledge of what this symbolism was, what was doing. And, and I was just walking from icon to icon just crying because I just was like, there's no words for the beauty of what's going on in these. And so I hope to maybe pass some of that on to you today. Now, I'm not even going to get close to the fullness of the iconography here. Uh, this is going to be icons 101, maybe, if that. Um, but I love them because they have so much to teach us and to show us. And so I want to walk you through some of the artistic genius of this icons and icons in general. So the first thing I want you to notice is that this icon clearly depicts the oneness of God. So here, here's how we see that. All three of these figures, all three of these angels are in the same, in, they're the same in form and size. You notice that? Uh, all three carry the same staves in their hand. Now, you might not be able to see them, so let's see if this will work. Um, you can see right here, and right here, and right here. Is that showing up? Yeah, that is. Uh, they have a, a, like a staff in their hand or a stave, right? So they all three have the same one. Um, they sit on the same type of seat. If I go back to the picture where you can see the whole thing, they're all three sitting on the same type of equal throne or seat. Uh, they're clothed in the same types of garments, and yet each one is individually distinct. We'll get to that. 
uh, the characteristics of the colors of the garments works with a limited palette of colors. There's uh, that deep red or purple. There's a pale green. Uh, and the one color that's common to all three of them is that blue that you see, that intense blue. And so, so we saw from last week, our God is one. And that's part of what's depicted here in this icon. But now let me just show you a few things about the persons of the Trinity in this icon. So the first person we see on the left is the father. So this figure here is the father on your left. Now, what you're going to notice about him is that very little of the blue color is shown. It's mostly veiled, right? And so we have not seen God the father. He has not fully revealed himself to us in his person. And so we also see that, uh, if I go back to this one, we also see right behind him, there is this uh, house, uh, which is representative of the idea of hospitality, that God is calling us home to him. Okay? So that's, that's the person of the father. The, the central person here, of course, uh, the central figure is representing the son. We see Jesus here. And what do we see about his clothes? His clothes, if I go back to this full picture, are actually predominantly blue. Most of what you see of this figure is blue because he has been revealed to us. Uh, and in him we see the glory of God. So think of the blue representing the glory, the, the godness of God, right? We also see that he has, uh, in this version, it's a deep red. In some, it's purple, uh, which with gold. Uh, if you notice there on his sleeve, he has gold. Actually, it's said that he has both sleeves are gold. You just can't see it because it's behind the blue. Uh, that's one of the beauties of icons. There are things that the artist says are there behind that piece that you can't see, but it's there because beauty is awesome, basically. Uh, so he has this deep purple and this gold representing his royalty. He's the chosen one of Israel. And we see behind him uh, this tree, which is an oak tree, which represents uh, the tree of life and also the wood that he uh, died on on the cross uh, to invite us into the community of love. And we're going to get into that. And then finally, on the right there, we see the figure representing the Holy Spirit. Again, we see the blue showing us the Holy Spirit has been revealed to us, but now we see that he is wearing green, which is the color in some traditions of the church of Pentecost. Uh, but also green, right? Think about spring. Green is the color of new life. And so the Holy Spirit brings new life. But what do we see behind the Spirit here? We see this rock formation or these mountains behind him. And, and it looks like, and you're right if you're thinking this, they are bowing towards the authority of God. That all creation is under his authority. But also in the Bible, a rock or a mountain, a, a high place, is a place where we meet with God, Right? Uh, you see that throughout the scriptures. And so now through the Holy Spirit, we have a meeting place with God. You, you don't have to go anywhere to meet with God. You don't have to come here. You don't have to go on a mountain to meet with God. If you know and love Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And in fact, you are the meeting place of God for the world. And so you don't need to go anywhere or to a specific mountain or a place to meet with the Holy Spirit. Although mountains are still pretty awesome for doing that. Right? Go in the mountains and pray. It's amazing. But just a few last things. Again, I'm not even going to get into all of the symbolism here. But notice, I want you to notice the posture and the gestures 
the hand gestures of these three figures. They all have their hand held in a specific way, right? And, and so you'll see that depending on the figure, a different hand might be used. Uh, they all in this, in this one have their right hand in this posture, but their hand is held like this. And you're, if you're like Protestant, low church, evangelical like me, you're like, what's that weird hand symbol? This is just a way to remember the reality that our God is three in one and that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That's all that is. It's, it's meant to be like a mnemonic device, right? We teach, right now, my daughter makes me sing her the ABC song to go to sleep, which is funny. Uh, but why do we put those songs or those little things into songs? Because they, that's how we memorize things. And so in, in this tradition, we teach our kids God is three in one and Jesus is fully God and fully man and and that's what that is. And so you see that in their, um, their hands. They're all slightly bowed to one another, if you notice. They're all kind of leaning in to one another, especially their heads. There, there is, uh, th- this is a beautiful symbol of their mutual submission to one another. There, there is no hierarchy in the Trinity that is not willful. I want you to hear that. There is no hierarchy in the Trinity that is not willful. So what does that say to us about human relationships if we're made in the image of God? There is nobody subservient to anybody else in the Trinity. And there's a whole sermon there on the idea of submission, biblical submission to one another. That's for another day. Now, there are some who see this as a depiction of the decisive moment when the Father in eternity past decides to send the Son for our salvation and they see the symbol of the chalice in the shape of the figures. Let me see if I can do this some justice here. You, you may not see this right away, but there is sup- supposed to be a chalice. You know what? Let me get a different color and a bigger marker. There is a symbol of a chalice. You see it? In the shapes of the two outer figures surrounding Jesus who comes as the sacrifice. So there is some really beautiful things in this uh, painting. But the single most important thing I want you to notice is this right here. And and it's not the chalice you see there, that's got meaning. It's not that little red square, that's got meaning. Uh, I, I want you to notice that there's an open spot at the table. And that spot is for you. That's what this painting is communicating to us, that God is inviting you into his eternally loving community of the Trinity and that his posture towards you is a posture not of judgment but of invitation. So so maybe you come in here and you think, I got to get everything right because God's going to judge me. No, God is leaning into you just waiting for the first little tiny sign of you turning towards him and his posture is to come towards you in Jesus. Right? So that's the beauty of this icon. Uh, so, so let's go back to our text now for a little bit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, so this is a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. And here, Paul, again, is commending the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So if we go to 1 John 1, we, we see in the scriptures that we also have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. We have fellowship with the triune God. And that word fellowship, I know we say it all, oh, the fellowship hall, right? That word fellowship carries the idea of real relationship. It's a two-way street. 
It's the word for communion. It means friendship, relationship characterized by giving and receiving. This is a give and take relationship that we have with God. And what Paul is saying here is that we have access to this communion. We have access to, this is a really important word for you to think about. We have access to participation with God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to see here is, again, this is the key to living the Christian life. That if our Christian life is not consciously grounded in the reality that we are invited into the community of the Trinity, it will not be the fullness of Christian life that Jesus intends for it to be. Let me give you a couple of texts. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. This is another one of the most uh, famous kind of Trinitarian verses in the Bible. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, For through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That may be the most important verse in the Bible on prayer and worship. Why? Because it tells you how you get into relationship with the Heavenly Father. You don't get into relationship with the Heavenly Father through works or your own strength or your ability to follow a religious code of ethics. You have access to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what shapes our understanding of prayer. It's what shapes our understanding of worship. C.S. Lewis, the, the great writer, uh, brings this down to uh, talking, talking about this idea of the Trinity, and he brings it down to the practice of prayer. This is really helpful. Listen, listen to what he says. An ordinary Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He is trying to get in touch with God, but knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. So God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all this, his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was also God, that Christ is standing beside, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. But God is also the thing in him which is pushing him on. It's the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal so that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary person is saying their prayers. This person is being caught up into the higher kind of life of the Trinity. He is being pulled into God by God. And if you're like, ooh, that language is kind of weird, I don't... You're right, it is a little bit, right? It feels kind of like, ooh, a little dangerous. But here's what you got to remember. The Trinity is beyond us. So trying to explain it and talk about it is going to feel a little bit like, ah, I'm getting close to danger and if you think I can fully explain the Trinity, you have stepped into danger and probably heresy. Because you can't. Right? So, every time we say our prayers, if you're praying in line with the gospel, if we're praying according to what the, the, the shape of the gospel, in our prayer life, we, we're addressing the Father, and you're addressing the Father because of what Jesus the Son has done for you, and you're doing so because of the Holy Spirit's work within you that makes you want to go to the Father. And so that's one reason it's really important for us when we pray in the name of Jesus, right? That's not a throwaway word for us. 
Those are not just words we say uh, mindlessly at the end of a prayer. The reality is the only way you get to the triune God is through Jesus. And Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I always want to remind you of this. He didn't say, I'm the path to the way. I'm the path to the truth. And I'm the path to the life. He said, I am those things. No one comes to the Father except through me. Which means if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. If you don't know Jesus, you can't know God. If you don't come to God through Jesus, you don't get to God. There is no access to God apart from Jesus, but through Jesus, what is there? There is actually real access to God and with God as our Father and in us in the Spirit. One more passage, John 16 verses 13 to 15. Here, Jesus is speaking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's pretty amazing what he says here. It's really important for us when we think of the Christian life. He says this, when the spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, it's capitalized. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. There's that divine submission. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said what he will take he, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see the invitation into community that Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak anything unless the Father tells him to speak it. And the Father gives what the Holy Spirit needs to speak to us so that we can hear it. And and all that the Father has, Jesus says, is mine. And so for what I said, I take what is mine and I give it to you. You see, that's the open chair at this table. Jesus is saying, I get from the Father everything and I want to give it to you. I want to invite you into the community. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you words from the Father. And the Father is like, listen to the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is like, listen to the Father, listen to the Spirit. It's this divine, beautiful, interactive community in the Trinity and you're invited into it. This shows us the Trinitarian pattern of our relationship back to God It's through the Spirit, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the priestly work of Jesus, the Son, who is the only mediator between God and men. I am not your mediator between God and man. I'm not your priest. You have one mediator between you and God, and that's Jesus. To the Father, so that grace and strength and glory and all of those things come to us from the Father, through the Son, applied by the Spirit, and our faith and our prayer and our worship, they come from us by the Spirit, through the Son, back to the Father. And so if you remove that, you're taking out the, the like fabric of the Christian life. It gets reduced to moralism. That's not what Christianity is. It's not, we're not a set of rules. If we remove that relationship, we become just a keep the rules, try to live by Christian principles and Christian ethics, but without power. And I don't know if you've lived more than 30 seconds, you can't do it for very long. Right? And our religion then, without a mediator, without a relationship, turns into this cold, harsh thing that people leave the church over. In fact, it turns into something that's not even Christian. It it turns into something that's cold, dead religion. Christianity is about relationship. And I know we say, we like to say this, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. 
But what does that actually mean? It means that Christianity is about an invitation into the real life of the Trinity. It's an invitation to sit at this table. It's relating to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. This is true of every aspect of Christian life. Let's just walk through a few examples. What's faith, right? It's the grace of trust by which we connect to God our Father through Christ by the Spirit. John Calvin said it this way, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. It is the primary means through which we worship the Father and express our trust in Jesus and our dependence on the Spirit. That's faith. What about love? Vertically, love is the expression of our love to the Father through the Son because of the work of the Son through the Spirit. But horizontally, love is the expression of the love of Jesus to others. Jesus himself loving others through us. What about service? Serving others. It's an imitation of God's love in Jesus by giving yourself away, by giving your time, your attention, maybe your dollars, your energy in practical ways to meet the needs of others. What about holiness? Holiness is our imitation of the character of God's holy, pure love revealed in who? Jesus and given to us by the Spirit. The fountain of all Love and grace is the love of the Trinity. It's the foundation of the gospel of our salvation. It's the grace and the relationship that we're invited to in the Trinity. And the key to living the Christian life is the fellowship of the Trinity. It is. Let me just end with one more quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from near the end of Mere Christianity. Uh, If you haven't read that book, you got to read it. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this amazing statement about our relationship with God. He says this. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person as we understand it, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of a drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three personal life is to be played out in each one of us or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which you were made. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy and power and peace and eternal life, you must get close to, even into, the thing that has those. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty and life spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. So to close today, what we're going to do before we get to the meal is I want to ask you in just a minute or so after I pray to go and get the communion elements and return to your seats. And we're going to make this a really meaningful moment of entering that spot at the table as we take this Uh, symbolic meal before we have a real meal. And then we'll take uh, the communion meal together and then we'll recite the creed together with a view towards noticing the life of the Trinity and feeling the invitation of the Trinity to come and have a seat at the table. So let me pray and then I'll give you about a minute or two to go grab the communion elements. The kids are not gonna make it back in for this today. Uh, And so then we will take communion and you don't have to even get all the way back to your seats. I just wanna invite you to get the elements and kind of make your way back somewhere in here. We'll have the communion meal, recite the creed, and then we'll have lunch together. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this reality that we are invited to this table.
that we're invited to a table we have no business being at, and yet we're invited to come and fully participate, not even as just guests. Lord, we know that we're not guests at your table. We're family. We're adopted sons and daughters with full access to everything that is life with you. And so I pray as we take this communion meal and and even as we celebrate just our community together through a, a meal that we've each prepared and brought together, that it would be a time of celebration of the life that we get to enter into, the life of you, the the Trinity, our God who is one and yet three. And so we praise you for this, and we pray all these things in your name, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, why don't you stand and make your way to the back of the room there and get the communion elements, and I'll lead us through in just a moment.